In the year 1050 A.D., a Viking ship captain named Herman O'Neill set his sights on Northern Ireland. O'Neill was an ambitious man. He planned to sail to the island, launch a military conquest, and become its king. The only problem with O'Neill's plan was that a rival Viking ship captain also hoped to one day rule Northern Ireland. And so to avoid a bloody conflict with a rival Viking crew, O'Neill proposed a contest with his rival. The first captain to sail to the northern shore of Ireland, Ireland and touch his hand down on Irish soil would win the right, would then be entitled to press on and conquer the island. Well, both captains, they sailed hard. They fought the winds the whole way. It was neck and neck across the high seas. But as the Irish shore came into view, the other ship caught a gust of wind. It surged ahead of Herman O'Neill. Captain O'Neill became alarmed. See, he wanted Ireland badly, and he saw his opportunity slipping away. Well, when the opposing ship captain boarded his little rowboat to head to shore, O'Neill became desperate. He whipped out his knife. He threw his hand up on the rail of the ship, and he, boom! He, he chopped off his hand. And from the deck of the ship, he threw his hand. And it landed on the Irish ground. His bloody hand touched the ground just seconds before the rival captain stepped out of his boat. O'Neill's hand was the first to touch Irish soil. O'Neill's colossal sacrifice won him the right to conquer Northern Ireland. His army was successful. And for many generations thereafter, his heirs ruled Northern Ireland. Obvious, Harriman O'Neill was zealous for the victory. He wanted it really, really, really bad. And I want to challenge you this morning. I want to ask you this question. How bad do you want it? How much do you desire spiritual victory in your life? One day we are all going to stand before the God who created us, as well as the Lord and Savior who died to redeem us. And in that day, how bad do you want to hear these words spoken over you Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want it as badly, as much as Harriman O'Neill wanted Northern Ireland? Enough to chop off a hand or pluck out an eye? How bad do you want to overcome the sin in your life and be a person who pleases God? Let me read to you our text again. And I want you, as I read it, I want you to let it soak in. If your right eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, it's tragic that over the years, people have taken Jesus' words here literally. They've resorted to physical amputation to corral their sinful, lustful tendencies. The early church leader, Origen of Alexandria, he lived around 200 A.D. 
And according to church history, Origen literally emasculated himself. He chopped off his genitals in an attempt to overcome sexual desire. In fact, enough men followed his lead that the church at the time had to issue a decree outlawing such practices. In the late 1800s, a Scottish preacher named A.J. Gossip, he had a student who went stark raving mad. And in his crazed state, he cut off his hand with a razor blade. When Gossip found the man, he was laughing and shouting hysterically, I did right, I did right, now I can see the face of Jesus. What an erroneous, tragic misunderstanding of these verses. Understand, Jesus is using a literary device known as hyperbole, or emphasis by exaggeration. He's overstating the issue to dramatize a level of intensity. Imagine a field goal kicker in a football game. He blasts a 50-yard field goal through the uprights with room to spare. The announcer shouts out, He kicked that ball right over the moon! Well, obviously the football didn't leave the stadium, let alone the Earth's atmosphere. But all his listeners understood exactly what he meant. And likewise, we know what Jesus means. He's using here a figure of speech. We know that Jesus spoke figuratively since a literal interpretation would have been pointless. Think about it. You can gouge out your right eye and still lust with your left eye, can't you? I mean, you can chop off one hand and you can steal with the other hand. In fact, if there's sin in your heart, you can chop off both hands and you'll go around stealing with your nubs. Physical amputation doesn't alter an inner appetite. You see, at first glance, this passage passage seems bizarre. But it really is packed with practical, workable, powerful words of hope for people who struggle with sin. I don't ask you to do this often, but this morning, I'm going to ask you to get out a piece of paper, and I want you to jot down four words, just four. We're going to keep it simple, but this is what I'm challenging you to do today. Recognize. That's the first word. Jot that down. Recognize. The second word is repent. The third word is recruit, and the fourth word is rethink. Here's what I'm asking you to do today. I want you to recognize and repent and recruit and rethink. Here are keys to victory for folks who long to overcome sin. Now first, if you want to overcome the sin in your life, you need to recognize the root of your problems. Notice Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, Then he says it again. If your right hand causes you to sin. Realize in this text, Jesus is telling us to identify and then deal with the cause of our sin. In verse 29, the word translated sin, it refers to the bait stick. You see, the bait stick is the trigger that springs the trap. The mouse takes the bait and trips the stick. And that stick slams the life right out of the little varmint. And Jesus is asking us, what is the cheese in our lives? What is it that sucks you in, that sets you up, that slams the life out of you? For Superman, it was kryptonite. Whenever he got near that rare green mineral, it robbed his strength. It turned him to goo. 
What's your kryptonite? For some of us, it's money or ambition or gossip or alcohol or pornography or we play the horses or we chase the skirts or maybe it's video games. I mean, some of us, some of us can be doing fine for days. Then we take the bait and it trips the trap and we're right back in the same mess we thought we'd escape. Hebrews 12 verse 1 describes the cheese as the sin that so easily ensnares us. And Jesus is asking you, what is it? What is it in your life? You need to identify your cheese. You need to deal with the sin that's working in your life. You see, dealing with sin is like pulling weeds. You know if you don't get it by the root, it'll grow back. To me, one of the truly amazing facts about human anatomy is that a person can't smell their own B.O. or bad breath. I mean, I can reek enough to knock a buzzard off a porta potty And yet, I'm usually the last one to know it. And the same is true with the sin in our lives. We develop huge blind spots. We see everybody else's problems but our own. I'm always amazed at how skilled I am at shifting the blame and dodging responsibility. I'll tackle anything but the real issue. You recall God told Balaam to go with the Midianites only under specific conditions? But his greed caused him to go anyway. When the angel of the Lord blocked Balaam, his donkey saw the angel and steered him off course. But rather than realize the error of his ways, the true cause of his problems, Balaam beat his burrow. He hit the donkey. Finally, God opened the donkey's mouth so that he could rebuke his owner. But I wonder how many of us have been guilty of beating our burrow. We're the cause of our bad situation. But rather than take responsibility, we're taking out our frustrations on our spouse or maybe our kids or even our peers or our boss. Hey, there's an old AA saying that's true. If I am not the problem, there can be no solution. Today, our whole society is bent on shifting the blame. How often do you hear phrases like, it's my parents' fault? Or it's the wife's fault? Or this is how I was raised? Or I was born this way? Or I'm a victim of my circumstances? Ours is the age of victimization. It's been said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. Heard the story of a minor league baseball manager who got so frustrated with his center fielder's play that he benched the boy and took over the position himself. Three balls were hit to him that inning. The first ball took a bad hop and popped him right in the mouth. The second ball he lost in the lights and let it drop right in front of him. The third ball was a sizzling liner that he misjudged and it rolled all the way to the fence. Well, when the manager called, came, off the end of the, came off the field at the end of the inning, he ran over to the former center fielder. He grabbed the poor boy by the shirt and he started shaking him and he said, Son, you got center field so messed up, not even I can get it straightened out. He wasn't seeing the root problem, was he? Imagine a rope, five foot long. One end of that rope is tied to my ankle. The other end of the rope is tied to a pit bull with rabies. 
And here I am trying to live a normal life. I get up in the morning. I go to bed at night. I head to the office. I do my job. I come home. I hang out with my amigos. But all the while, I'm ignoring that pit bull. You see the problem with this picture, don't you? I'm sure you do. There's no way my life will have any semblance of normality with that pit bull tied around my ankle. Oh, maybe for a few hours a day while the pit bull's asleep, but my life is going to be utter turmoil. I can't work because the dog bites and growls at my coworkers. I can't spend any quality time with my kids. They're afraid of the vicious dog. My wife won't sleep with me because I'm bringing a pit bull to bed. The only friend I got is Michael Vick, and he moved away. My whole life is in shambles because of that lousy dog. And listen, I can spend thousands of hours in counseling, learning how to be a good employee and a better husband and a loving dad and a loyal friend, but I'm just treating the symptoms. Face it, until I get that doggone dog off my ankle, nothing that I do is going to solve my problems and straighten out my life. I've got to stop sidestepping the real issue. I can even come to church. I can walk the aisle, stand in the altar, pray a prayer to Jesus himself. I can cry my eyeballs out in sincere remorse for the damage I've done and the pain I've caused the people I love. I can say I'm putting my faith in Christ. But if I deliberately rise to my feet and walk out without doing anything about the pit bull tied to my ankle, I'm no better off than when I came in. Oh, but Sandy, doesn't God cleanse us from our sins when we confess it and when we ask for His forgiveness? And of course He does. But guys, we've got to confess the right stuff. We need to confess the real cause of our sin. See, here's the question. What's your pit bull? Is it drinking? Is it greed? Is it a gambling problem? Is it lust? Do you have too much time on your hands? Do you have an overstuffed ego? Is it gossip? Is it pornography? What if I walked into my own living room with that pit bull tied around my ankle and then fell asleep on the couch? Imagine the damage that dog would do to my house. He'd eat the carpet, poop on the floor, slobber all over the furniture. And what if this went on day after day and I never dealt with the dog, even pretended that it didn't exist? Do you think my wife is going to continually come in after me and clean up the mess that I refuse to even address? You don't know my wife. Kathy Adams is nobody's fool. And neither is God. Hey, Jesus does love you. He died to forgive you. God desperately wants to forgive you. But you've got to confess the sin that's really causing the problem. Once there was an old man, he offered the same prayer every single Sunday morning at church. He would stand up and he would pray, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Oh, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Finally, young one, one young fellow, he got tired of the old man's prayer. And as soon as the old fellow had sat down one Sunday, he jumped up and he prayed, Lord, forget about the cobwebs. Kill the spider. The 
This is what Jesus is telling us. Recognize the problem. What is it that causes you to sin? Then get that out on the table and, and the Lord will begin to work in your life. Well, first, recognize the cause. You should write that down. Recognize the cause. And then second, write this down. Radically repent. For once you've identified what's causing the sin, what's next? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, pluck it out and cast it from you. Cut it off and cast it from you. Here's how to deal with a sinful stronghold. You pluck it out, you cut it off, and you cast it from you. And this calls for radical action. Can you think of anything more drastic than chopping off a hand or gouging out an eye? I mean, the imagery here is so graphic and violent. Obviously, Jesus is calling for desperate action. And this is how you deal with a sin that's hard to shake. You stop playing around with it. Instead, you pluck it out, and you cut it off, and you throw it away. You do whatever it takes to logistically and physically remove yourself from the vice that has you entangled in its web. Evangelist Billy Sunday once said, The reason we struggle with sin is we treat it like a cream puff rather than a rattlesnake. Repentance takes sin seriously. You see, true repentance is more than remorse and tears and regret. It's more than a wounded pride. It's more than just being sorry you got caught. It's more than public embarrassment or wanting it over with so that you can avoid any more painful consequences. Listen carefully. Repentance is the willingness to do whatever it takes not to sin again. Repentance is the willingness to do whatever it takes not to sin again. Simply put, it's severing yourself from the cause of your sin. You see, throughout the New Testament, the Lord expects two things from us. He wants us to repent and to believe. We need to have faith. We need to believe. We need to turn our lives over to Jesus and let Him do that awesome work in our hearts, that heart transplant that He wants to do. He promises to take out our heart of stone and replace it with a compliant heart. A heart that loves God and loves other people. He wants us to believe and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But all the while I'm believing, my other responsibility is to repent. This means that as I'm believing God for His power, I'm also staying as far away from the sin as possible. You see, Jesus cuts the rope from the pit bull. But I can't keep coming over and petting in it and feeding it. You need to supply a willingness to change. Hey, I understand. We cannot change ourselves. Jesus alone has the power to affect significant changes in our lives. But we have to provide Him the desire to change. God isn't going to work changes in our lives against our will. This is why repentance takes drastic action. To overcome a habitual sin, you need to remove yourself from the people and situations that perpetuate that sin. Jesus says, gouge it out, cut it off, cast it away. Stay away from the cause of your sin. You see, repentance gets really practical. 
I mean, it's like cutting off an appendage. You take a different route home from work that avoids the bar. You skate around the folks that used to sell you cocaine. You avoid the girls at the office that like to get together and talk about people. You throw out the pot plants you're growing in your basement. You get a porno filter for the internet. Or you let your wife browse your laptop at night. You block out the cable channels that stir up lustful thoughts. You cut up the credit cards so that you don't fall prey to impulsive spending. You see, if you don't do these things, you can't truly say you're repentant. Real repentance involves renewing my mind and restructuring my time and reordering my priorities and rearranging my schedule and reassessing my friends. Hey, if maintaining my integrity means losing my job, then so be it. God can find me another job. If the TV is the bait stick, then I need to lock up the TV in the closet for a while. If I'm single and my physical desires are out of control, then repentance for me means stop dating until I can get a handle on my hormones. Recall our initial question. How bad do you want it? The sacrifices each of us are called on to make will vary, but our reaction needs to be the same. Yes, Lord, whatever I need to do, I'll do. We need to repent at the root. Guys, don't settle for anything less than total victory. See, here's a mistake people often make. People think that we can overcome our ensnaring sin by tapering off, not cutting off. Jesus didn't say taper off. He said cut it off, pluck it out. If you want God's deliverance, you can't just expect to ease away. The Lord tells us we've got to cut it off and cast it out. We've got to put an end to that sin. Don't just try to strike a happy medium. Jesus is clear. Whatever causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Reminds me of the guy who went to a fortune teller. All this gal did was smile at him. She had this really strange, plastic, phony smile plastered all over her face. All he's talking to her and all she's doing is just grinning at him. Well, finally, the man got so frustrated, he reached over and he just tried to slap the silly grin right off the girl's face. Later, he was arrested. You know what he was sentenced with? Striking a happy medium. That's not what you want to do if you're struggling with sin. Don't just strike a happy medium. Don't hang on to your sin for a rainy day. Hey, some of you have got a stash put away right now. I know you do. Some of you, you've got it in your pocket right now. Or it's in a cabinet at home. Or it's hidden in your garage where your wife can't find it. I'm telling you, hold on to your sin and it will come back to haunt you. Don't ever forget, stuff leads to other stuff. Do you understand this? Life is full of chain reactions. I call it the snowball effect. Get the ball rolling and it builds momentum. And this works in either direction. Start moving in godliness and godliness will grow. But likewise, little compromises end up leading to bigger compromises. Again, here's the principle. Stuff leads to other stuff. 
Vin Scully was a long time, still is a long time, sportscaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Once he got a letter from a female listener who wrote to tell him that she was expecting a baby. You wonder, what did Ben Scully have to do with this woman getting pregnant? Well, it's not what you think. She writes to him, Dear Vin, my husband falls asleep at night listening to the Dodgers game. The radio is on his side of the bed. And to turn it off, I have to crawl across him. I want you to be the first to know that we're expecting a baby in six months. In other words, stuff leads to other stuff. Good or bad. And this is why we need to be careful. This is why tapering off is not enough. You've got to cut it off. See, any little action can set off a chain reaction. And you see, this is why a big part of the Christian life isn't just cutting off bad habits and attitudes. It's developing good habits, new thought patterns, embracing a new identity. Remember, the snowball effect works both ways. Get rolling in the wrong direction, it's hard to stop. But get some momentum flowing in a Godward direction, and you'll go from grace to grace to grace. You'll begin to grow. See, here's what Jesus is telling us. Recognize your sin, then radically repent, and then third, write this down, recruit some help. Recruit some help. See, if Jesus had meant to be taken literally, it would be difficult to gouge out your own eye. Somebody asked me yesterday, have I ever thought of using contacts? I said, I can't, I can't put my finger in my eye, let alone gouge out my eye. Too squeamish. You'd have a hard time chopping off your own hand. Most of us are too squeamish for that job. Herman O'Neill is an exception to the rule. No, if we wanted to chop off a hand or cut it, pluck out an eye, we would recruit a doctor to perform the procedure. And likewise, when it comes to this kind of struggle with sin, we also need some outside help. We need a friend. I read where movie companies today and concert promoters are assigning sober companions to famous actors and rock stars with substance abuse problems. For the company, they're protecting their investment. These people are also called clean living assistants. They're always on duty. They're hovering around the person to remind the struggling star of the issues and, and, and what's at stake in their life. You know, as Christians, we too have a sober companion. His name is the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us to convict us and to comfort us and to guide us. And we should trust Him. We should walk with Him. But God also places us in a family of other believers, the church. And in the church, we should recruit some friends to be clean living assistants. We need a fellow Christian or a group of believers who will hold us accountable and who will ask us the hard questions like, how's it going at home? When was the last time you lost your temper with your kids? How did you spend your evenings on that recent business trip? Are you reading your Bible every day? Is there anyone in your life asking you those questions? You need to recruit some help. I've heard it said, sin can breed only in the dark chambers of the mind. Like mold and mildew, sin flourishes in dark, damp corners. 
It's only when we confess our sin and get it out in the open, when we expose our sin to the light of God's Word and the fresh air of the Holy Spirit, that's when sin dissipates and loses its potency. If you keep it hidden, it only gains more and more momentum. This is why James chapter 5, verse 16 instructs us to confess. It's a, James says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, healing takes place. Power is unleashed when we open up our lives to one another. It's been observed in the early church, Christians confessed their faults to one another. In the medieval church, they confessed their faults to a priest. In today's evangelical church, we confess our faults to God alone. Christians have become more and more private in our confessions, and we have become shallower in our fellowship. If we're going to deal effectively with the sin and struggles in our lives, we have got to make room for people who care, who will help us chop off that sin when necessary. Oh, so often we worry about what people will think if they learn of our real problems. But hey, most likely those other people you're worried about, they have the same struggles themselves. We hide from each other while we desperately need each other. Let me ask this group this morning a question. Will all the perfect people please stand up? Somebody pointed out this morning that I was standing up. Except me. I, I don't have a chance. Will all the perfect people join me and please stand up? Obviously, nobody stands up. Hey, none of us are perfect. We shouldn't pretend to be. This means that everybody here this morning will be sure to extend grace and mercy because it's grace and mercy that they need too. Nobody here is ready to judge. Nobody's here is in that place. Hey, don't you think it's time for you to reach out to someone who can help you gouge it out and cut it off and throw it away? I think so. Well, there's one more key that we glean from our text. When it comes to overcoming sin in our lives, we need to recognize its cause, repent radically, recruit some help, and then fourthly, write this down, Rethink your priorities. Rethink your priorities. Notice here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus is making value judgments. Notice twice he tells us it is more profitable. That's a value word. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. We need to understand a basic truth. Nothing on this earth or in this life is worth holding on to if it sends you to hell. One of the worst effects of sin is that it clouds our judgment. You see, in the midst of an ensnaring sin, we can lose sight of important allegiances and loyalties in our lives. I met a man once who was so deluded by his sin that he was stealing his own elderly mother's social security check each month so he could go out and bet on the football games. I mean, that's low. That's scumbag stuff. You don't wake up in the morning and decide you want to be a scumbag. But it happens. 
and the man couldn't even see it. You see, for a person who's battling with a stronghold of sin, those images that keep popping up on the computer, that's the only thing he can see. That next hit, placing that bet, the next drink, that one final time ends up becoming their all-consuming fascination. You see, in the heat of the moment, your sin can mean more to you than your spouse or your kids or even your God or even heaven and hell. This is why the person struggling with sin needs to stop and needs to take time to rethink their life. Sadly, in the world that we live, the emphasis is on the here and now. I mean, people live for the moment or for the weekend, but they don't get much further in their plans. Eternity, heaven and hell are mere afterthoughts. But guys, heaven and hell are real. And our eternal state is being determined right now. Nothing is more vital. Eternity is today's most serious business. You need to think about your priorities. We all need to rethink the issues that are really important to us. You see, Jesus is saying it is better to endure the unanesthetized pain of gouging out an eyeball and entering into heaven with a patch than it is to spend eternity in hell with two eyes and 20-20 vision. A blissful forever is worth a little discomfort right now. We need to rethink our priorities in light of eternity. You see, just as a physical amputation causes severe pain, so can repentance. To pluck it out or to cut it off or to cast it away means saying goodbye to people and to places and to pleasures that used to fill a hole in our lives. When we first repent, it's painful to lose those former preoccupations that we were dependent on. We've got to rethink. And we've got to decide that the gain is worth the loss. In April 2003, Aaron Ralston was climbing in Utah's Blue John Canyon. He was out for a one-day hike. Ralston was navigating a narrow canyon when an 800-pound boulder shifted and pinned his arm against a crack in a rock. Well, Aaron used the pocket knife he was carrying to try to chip away at the boulder, but it was no use. He rigged up some pulleys with ropes that he had in his knapsack, hoping to move the boulder, but it was no good. After three days, he was out of food and water. He realized that he was going to die before anybody found him. And so... This 27-year-old engineer did what he had to do. To save his life, he cut off his own arm just below the elbow. Aaron Ralston's drastic measures freed him from the entrapment, and he was able to hike to safety. Aaron said later, I felt pain, and I coped with it. I moved on. You see, living for him was worth the pain. And the same is true for us. Trust me, life in heaven, life with God. I mean, life in your own home, raising your own kids, is worth whatever pain and amputation from sin might cause. Our passage teaches us that following Jesus requires painful choices. It hurts to gouge out a sin that was a source of security or to cut off a friendship that was fun for a while 
or to throw out a pleasure that used to help you cope. When you get serious with sin, it will cost you. You see, God insists that you change. And you have to be willing to change. But at first, change is always painful. Ken Hughes comments on this passage. He said, it hurts to sever your hand or to tear out an eye. And it hurts to give up wrong things in our lives. But it is better your blood be on the ground than your life burn on the rubbish heap for eternity. It stings to turn from certain vices. But the gain from doing so is worth any pain it might cause. Speaking of pain, Jesus endured far more than His share. He was willingly nailed to the cross of Calvary. He voluntarily paid the frightful penalty for our sin. You see, for Jesus, the cross was a trade-off. Though it cost Him enormous pain, the cross enabled Him to forgive you and to share His life with you both now and forever. Apparently, Jesus thinks that you are worth the trouble. Life with Jesus. Our blessings in Christ are worth gouging out an eye. They're worth chopping off a hand or giving up whatever it might be that's between us and Him. You see, the cross of Christ is a symbol of sacrifice. In one bold, stunning act of courage, Jesus took up His cross and He laid down His life for us. And now in a thousand daily ways, often common ways, we're called on to take up our cross and lay down our lives for Him. Will you do it? Will you do it? You were saved by the cross. Will you now take up your cross? Hey, don't think for a second you can take up a cross painlessly. No, the cross will always cost you some discomfort, some pain. But it's worth it. Hey, we all want to grow. But here's what you need to realize. There is no growth without change. And there is no change without loss. And there is no loss without pain. Thus, if you want to grow and overcome the sin in your life, you need to expect to make some painful choices. Laying down your life and following Jesus is the only way to live victoriously over the sin that tempts us. Well, the only question left this morning is, how bad do you want it? Is life with Jesus worth whatever it takes to overcome your ensnaring sin? How bad do you want to hear the words spoken over you? Well done, good and faithful servant. Bad enough to recognize the real cause of your sin? Bad enough to repent radically? Bad enough to recruit some help? Bad enough to rethink your priorities? For all of us this morning, it's time. It's time. It's past time to chop it off, to pluck it out, to give it to God. And with all that's left, let's follow Jesus. Today, we can cross over from sin to victory through the cross of Jesus Christ.